Hello, mobilizers. You are listening to Mission Possible. It's season two, looking at a new perspective on change for returning citizens. I'm Sheila Murphy, chief mobilizer for Mission to Mobilization, focused on changing the way you see our 4.5 million returning citizens, the collateral consequences they face, and the 13th Amendment that is at its root. I call it a life sentence. This mission is possible, and you are a part of the change. This season, professionals, employees, and family members are speaking up and out about a community of second chancers. They are sharing returning citizen success stories and how ordinary people are providing support and making a difference in the mission. Whether you are imprisoned physically or in your mind, later, certified health and well-being coach and author Nate Battle gives strategies for healthy living amidst our very challenging obstacles. Today, I'm excited to bring to the show someone I would call a friend. With a robust career and over 29 years in the heart of social work, my guest has helped individuals manage family stress, tragedy, change, and transition. What I most respect about today's professional voice is her ability to balance compassion with correction and truth with transparency. Tracy Edwards is a supervisory resource development specialist, which paraphrase means she knows a lot about helping people. I'm sitting down with Tracy because I believe her insight is valuable and her perception and perspective may incentivize one more listener to think differently about where they may influence change in their network. Please welcome Ms. Tracy Edwards. Tracy, Thank you for joining the show. Definitely. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. You're welcome. Okay, let's jump right in. I want to get started. Please tell our audience what you do and a brief overview of an average workday for you. So I'm a social worker by profession. I currently work in the child welfare arena. I've worked with families who have had children who were abused and or neglected. And currently I work with foster families who care for those children. My day is filled pretty much with problem solving, troubleshooting, and assisting families with resources, troubleshooting, areas of concerns that they may have with children that that they're caring for, helping them to navigate systems, helping them to be peer coaches to um, families who may have children who have been placed in foster care. Okay. Okay. Social work, people talk about it all the time. That is hard work. And so I, I really would love that. I don't think I've ever asked you why or what interests you in this type of work. Well, it was kind of happenstance, to be quite honest. When I finished high school, I was trying to figure out what it is that I was going to do with my life. Somewhere in the back of my head, I always thought that I was going to be a teacher. And somehow I got the great idea that maybe social work would be the best profession for me. And pretty ironically, I thought that I was going to go into an area of social work, not fully understanding the career path that I chose, but thought that I was going to be that person who was going to ensure that individuals did not take advantage of the system. Hmm. But after getting fully engaged, I realized that there wasn't such a thing as taking advantage of a system because what I learned was that anyone who was unfortunate enough who needed assistance 
at the various social service agencies that exist were at a disadvantage. And then that helped to shape and mold and and weave together what I had learned throughout my entire life coming from a family that is fully vested in helping and being a help change agent for people in the community on an informal basis. Choosing the field of social work allowed me to do the very thing that I had always observed and Mm -hmm. even participated in, but I'm doing it now on a professional level. Wow, that's awesome. It's amazing how things happen in that way. You know, like you said, it's not happenstance. It really was meant to be. Right, right, right. Absolutely. I don't think um, at this point there probably is any other career that would have been better suited for me because in the field of social work, I truly operate in the order of teaching. I I teach regularly, (laughs) you know, whether it is directly with clients or if it is with staff who are assigned in my unit, you know, we're we're always in the process of teaching and learning and teaching and learning. So, yep, it's it's great. That's beautiful. I love it. You know, I see that and I know just based on many of our conversations that you either see or provide oversight for families who are managing challenges. That's a part of what you do. And I wanted to know how you have seen previously incarcerated parents affect the lives of the children that you're serving and then talk a little bit about some examples from what things that you've seen. Well, working with families who have incarcerated family members and primarily where birth families have been incarcerated, it is very hard. It's it's hard on everyone. It's hard. Tracy, let me ask you, when you say birth families, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I just want to be clear about what you mean by that. So generally, when children are placed in foster care, they have a foster mom or dad, and then they have what we call their bio or their birth parent. That is a parent that we probably have removed the child from. And so it it is their their parent of origin. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Right. And so generally, when a family member, particularly a parent, has been incarcerated and their child has ended up in our system, what we find is is that the the issues that arise are deep and they're long. They not only affect the child, but they also affect the extended family members. One of the things that I've observed over the time that I've worked in the child welfare arena and working with families who have been incarcerated is that there is a loss um, that our children experience that you can't even speak to. There is no family visitation that can occur. And when it does, it is, you know, at a facility. And, you know, there's a lot of uh, arrangements that have to be made so that we can be cleared to even take the child to the facility. And not only that, you know, you have to go through the chaplain and you, you know, there's just so many layers that are involved. And then once you get there, you spend more time waiting than you do actually. Uh, you know, have watching the child engage with their parent because by the time you go through those systems, the layers of security, you know, the visit is only for 15, 20 minutes and then it's over. The aftermath of it is trying to explain to a child why their parent is incarcerated. Hmm. And it, you know, it sounds like a lot of isolation, that there's a lot of isolation, you know, isolating the child from the parent. 
I mean, isolation only because physically you can't get to the parent, you know, and that's when we try to really incorporate and, and have extended family members, you know, grandparents, aunts, uncles, um, to engage with the child, even on some levels help, you know, to facilitate some of the visitation so that okay. it is not so convoluted and so weighed down, you know, with government entities or mm. what have you. But it, it, I mean, certainly it can be, it can be very isolating. I mean, the mere fact of being separated from your parent is isolating. And from the parent side, you know, being separated from their child and not having easy access, not only to do visitation, but even to contact, you know, service providers, social workers and other providers to find out exactly what's going on with their children. So it is, it's very challenging and it's, it's disheartening because you have systems that you're dealing with. And it's not as if we can say, do this program or participate in this class and then you can have your child back. The limitation is is that you have to deal with a penal system that now is dictating when you actually will have your freedom. Sure, sure. Right. And I understand that obviously if someone is incarcerated, there are laws and rules and boundaries that surround that incarceration. I just was thinking this just briefly. Do the child or the parents have the ability to write letters? Yeah, they do. Um, you know, and it is case by case. It depends on, interestingly enough, if the child is, if the parent is incarcerated because they were the person who did harm okay. to the child, that play, puts a whole nother spin on it. Sure. You know, they're, you know, what we call guardian ad litems who determine what level of contact or make representations to the court about what level of contact the child should have. You know, we go through a battery of tests, psychological, psychiatric tests testing, not just because the parent has been incarcerated, but because the child has experienced abuse or neglect. And so it just is compounded when we have those kind of experiences with, you know, a parent being incarcerated and that parent actually being the perpetrator. Um, And in other cases, it's still just going through the bureaucracy that makes things more challenging. Right, right. And I, I can only imagine and just thinking what what you've seen and and the, the level of pain that you kind of started talking about initially, how deep and why the, the issues really, really are. Right. You know, I, I it brings to, you know, I had one case in particular where the children, I had a, a sibling group that was, had been in care. Their mother not only was incarcerated, but was incarcerated because of addiction to drugs. And there are time frames in which we have to provide permanency for children who are placed in care. And as a result of that, you know, we had to make some decisions about permanency for those children. And in this particular case, the mother in the case willfully decided to relinquish her rights so that her children could, in fact, be adopted. Hmm. And that was, I think that that was probably one of the boldest things that I've ever seen a parent do because they were put in a position or some would believe got themselves in a position where they were no longer able to parent, but also had to make the decision about what was really going to be in the best interest of their child or children in this particular case. And so it was it was challenging to have to counsel a parent who was incarcerated. And I knew that there was nothing that I could do to make this scenario any different than what it actually was. Right, 
Right. And then I'm sure there's probably you have years of examples and scenarios where, you know, your hands are tied and Absolutely. you had to make tough decisions or right, and help people make tough decisions. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. I need for us to to switch gears for a moment. I wanted to talk about your experience volunteering. As I was thinking, I was telling you, I was thinking about how that you volunteered with Mission to Mobilization in the past and you were a volunteer for the Walk a Month workshop. And that's where participants have the opportunity to simulate the life as a returning citizen in our community. So I wanted you to talk about what your role was and what did you learn overall through your participation as a volunteer? Participating in the simulation program was actually really exciting for me, exciting in that it exposed me to a different perspective. You know that people are incarcerated. You know that there are challenges that one faces just by the mere fact that they've been incarcerated. But what I didn't quite understand until I participated in the simulation that took place was the challenges that they continue to experience even after incarceration. And it is not the big issues that they face by, you know, with respect to being marginalized and discriminated against, but it is the small things like not meeting deadlines for certain services. And I mean, just in, in terms of time. So the office closes at two o'clock, but you could only get there by three o'clock. And now you got to wait a whole nother week or so until you can get in touch with whomever it is that you need to be in touch with for a particular service. I don't think that service providers always think about it in those terms. And for me, it was, it showed me some, another level of empathy and understanding that everything is not so scheduled and it cannot be so regimented when you are working with people who are trying to restore what has been lost. Mm -hmm. um, there has to be a level of compassion that goes along with it. I mean, you may be there with your coat in hand and purse in hand and ready to walk out the door and someone shows up. I think that it's important for myself to be reminded and for all service providers to understand, you might need to put your coat down for a second. Mm -hmm. You don't know what that might mean for that individual who is trying to rebuild and to integrate themselves back into society. Yes, it's so true. It, it, it's so true. And that empathy and compassion is, is critical. And, and thank you. Thank you for, for, for bringing that perspective. And I wanted you to also mention the role that you actually played in the simulation. So I actually, I don't remember, I think that I was a person who was responsible for giving out housing vouchers. Okay, I okay, okay. That's what I was supposed to do. Mm -hmm. But my assignment was that I was closed more time than I was actually open. Okay. And so there were people who were standing in line waiting to meet with me. And my instructions was to close at a certain time. And so that meant I had to turn people away, yeah. which was, you know, it was hard. It was hard. And particularly when you're hearing the story, me, I missed my bus. So I didn't have a ride and I just got here. Can you see me? Mm -hmm. And to have to actually just close the door and say, no, I can't. You have to come back when I open again. Right. 
you know, that was, that was hard. Yes. Yeah. And I, and I do remember just hearing from each simulation and I, and I hear this all the time, but people that volunteer and have to be the service providers that they do learn a lot. And sometimes it's very heart wrenching for them mm-hmm. to have to say no or to have to be harsh or have to have those guidelines, which in some cases there needs to be some bending and there needs to be some review of how they actually engage people that may have legitimate reasons for needing change or needing for the organization or the service to be modified. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I can't help but to think, Sheila, that that rigidness does not exist. However, when we did our breakout at the simulation, you know, there were some participants um, who actually had been incarcerated and had gone through some of the processes that, you know, were demonstrated through the simulation. And unfortunately and sadly, you know, some of them said that, yeah, it can be that cruel and it can be that hard. And so, you know, it just helped me to understand that you do have to have compassion. You know, if, if you're going to work in these kind of positions to be a help agent and a change agent, you have to have a heart to actually mm-hmm. want to change and help That's good. Um, what is going on and, That's you know, good. the life of an individual. That's good. That's really good, Tracy. Thank you. Thank you. I'd like for our audience to know what makes our guests tick. You know, we just have a little bit of time, but I ask, try to ask a lot of different types of questions. But I wanted you to please name one person that you believe has most inspired your life. You know, share a story or some kind of example or something of how that person has and, and that the way that person has impacted you, how, how that's demonstrated, been demonstrated throughout your everyday living. So I would have to say that it is my mother. Okay. Joyce Harris Cotman. And I say that because my mother faced a lot of adversities. She was a teen mom. She married young. She is a survivor of domestic violence. And my mother raised six children by herself, put herself through school, wow. um, finished high school, college, and retired as a registered nurse. Wow. And from that, what I realized is that there is not in our vocabulary that you can't. Hmm. Where there is a well, there is a way that you can make lemons out of lemonade into lemonade and that you just push and you keep going. She still is my motivator to this day, even as she, you know, is 80 plus years now, still working in the community, still encouraging not only me, but, you know, the generations behind me to help and to continue to strive and to be the best that you can be. And so with that, you know, when problems come, you know, I'm trying to figure out what's the solution. Mm That's that's awesome. That's amazing. She's just an yeah. amazing, amazing woman. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Beautiful. So she's my hero. Yeah. <laughs> Your shero, right? She's my shero. <laughs> I love it. That's that's beautiful. Lastly, I want to ask you one more thing. I think that it's important to mention that when you and I first started working together a few years ago, that you were really honest in saying that you'd never thought much about engaging in work specifically around returning citizen issues. And so I wanted you to kind of think about based on your tenure in social work, resourcing populations with challenges, and what you've learned over the last several years working with Mission Demobilization, has your belief system regarding second chances for returning citizens been modified in any way? Kind of talk about that. 
Well, I mean, I think that while I didn't necessarily think of returning citizen as a citizens as a primary population that I was interested in working with, I've always had a compassion for those who are struggling. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, by the mere fact that, you know, I'm in the profession that I'm in and I'm, you know, to be quite honest with you, you know, and I've shared with you before that I think that incarceration is twofold. It is physically and it is mentally mm-hmm. and that there are many people who are walking around with mental in a mental prison because they have not been released from certain things and it's compounded when you are incarcerated and then when you are told that things are going to be better and that you are going to get reformed and then you come out of prison or jail and you find that people are trying to keep you in that same box that has changed my mind to some degree about how I see working with those who have been incarcerated versus those who have never had that experience. Because I now I know that it is twofold, threefold, fourfold of what someone else is experiencing because you're just trying to live down so many obstacles that are presented. You know, you can't get a job. You possibly can't care for your children. You can't live in certain places. I mean, you know, it just, you can't vote. There are just so many obstacles that one faces, you know, when they've been incarcerated. But on the other side, you know, when we talk about modification of my thoughts, it's like, I still believe that all things are possible and that that organizations such as yours, you know, we can educate people better because we all have those experiences. You know, I'll be candid. I have family members who have been incarcerated and I see them differently. Mm. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, while this might not be my life work, I definitely would always want to be a contributor to keep my hand on the pulse of, you know, the impacts that returning citizens are faced with because they are in the arena of every microcosm that we're dealing with, you know. That's right. It's there. And so you you can't ignore it. Either it's physical or it's emotional or mentally. It's there and we have to tap into it because if you can change your mind, you can change your world. Yes, yes, and yes. That and it's so true. And I just want to thank you. That's a perfect quote for us to end on. And you're you're on the inside. And then you so you have a, a number of lenses that you're wearing. And you were candid enough to talk about how you've changed, you know, and how some different things have been modified in your experiences. And to me, that is what I want to see happen. I believe to the point that you made where working with returning citizens or supporting them may not be a person's life's work because everyone is not going to do this kind of work. But I do believe that as they learn about a number of the challenges or what we call collateral consequences of their incarceration, that their perspective gets tweaked and there's a little bit more compassion. Maybe somebody does set their purse down. You know, Maybe there is another conversation that is had to say, how can I better support this person and recognize that they may need just a little extra support in the midst of what looks to be very hard, harsh reality in their return to society. So Tracy, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time and and just for your heart. It's always a pleasure for me to be able to sit down with you. And it's wonderful for me to be able to share you with our audience. Well, I thank you and definitely keep up the excellent work. 
I do know that we keep plugging at it, things will change. That's it. That's it. Thank you. Well, on that note, we're going to, I'm going to let you go. And so I will, hopefully I will talk to you soon. And I just pray blessings over your life. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Hey human, Coach Nate here with today's battle plan. In life, there's going to be difficulties. We're going to face them. We have a natural tendency to respond to difficulties in a way that I'll say doesn't always benefit us. So I want to talk a little bit of, about that. It was Rita Levi Montalcini that said, Above all, don't fear difficult moments. The best comes from them. And, and to break that apart, starting with above all, in, in what it is that you do, no matter what you do, when facing a difficulty, do not fear it. Fear paralyzes, saps our creative energies, mindset, focus, ability to think. It can cause paralysis. It can stifle and prohibit us from being able to address the difficulty. So when it says above all, the last thing to do when you're facing a difficult moment is to fear it. Remain open to it. If you can get to the point where you run up against a difficulty, respond to it in a matter of, I chose this, that's embracing it, versus resisting it in fear, you have a much better chance, opportunity, you will be better suited for working through that difficulty. The second part, the best comes from them. Imagine an Olympic runner, a marathon runner, someone who's trying to accomplish a feat that they've not done before, whether it be setting a world record, whether it be moving up to the next level from the level that they're on, making a career change, asking someone out, leaving a relationship, crossing the street, leaving the house for some that are challenged with mental illness, venturing out to travel across the country. There is a long list of firsts or accomplishments that I can list. But the point is, if you can imagine any one of those, perhaps put your own in there, it's during that very last home stretch. It's when you make the decision to act. It's in the acting. That is a difficult moment, whether you're exerting yourself physically or mentally, but the good that comes from that decisive action, effort that you've put forth, it's when we're challenged. It's when we become, when we're made to feel uncomfortable where we're at. We're not happy where we're at, but we often don't change, move, correct things when we're comfortable. It's when we're made to feel uncomfortable. I call that a difficulty. Don't limit your opportunity to expand, grow, develop, become a better version of yourself by shutting down in fear once it becomes hard. Because the difficulty that you face is the gate, the opening to your new beginning, very much like a caterpillar that turns into a butterfly. The difficulty as it works its way out of that cocoon, but in doing so, it's squeezing the blood into the veins to become the beautiful butterfly that can fly. So as you go about your goals, what it is that you are looking to, wanting to, aiming to have goals to accomplish, know that it's in those difficult moments that the 
good stuff comes out of. Don't give up when the going gets tough. We've heard the cliche. Don't quit. Don't falter. Don't shy away. Don't fear. You are near that race's finish line. Keep going and wring the very best out of every difficulty as the nectar for your best life. Until next time, this is Coach Nate. Live your best life on purpose now. One of my sisters shared a story with me about a 10-year-old boy whose father was locked up and mother was struggling with an addiction. This little boy, I'll call him Jason, was spiraling out of control, missing school, cursing out teachers and students, and visibly angry, basically mean-mugging the entire world. Long story short, an after-school program engaged Jason, and within one school year, he started learning how to play the violin, joined a community choir, and improved his grades and test scores. Simply remarkable. Are there adults or children of someone recently released that may need an extra hand, ride, or reference for a job or program? There's a proverb that says, Hear, my children, the instruction of a father and give attention to no understanding. The children of those that have been incarcerated could use a little help. I'd love for you to start with how you think about the Jasons in the world and consider how your changed perception and simple action may save someone's life. Host a Walk a Month workshop, sponsor a podcast, or increase your giving to our nonprofit organization by visiting patreon.com free returning citizens get today's battle plan by visiting natebattle.com i'm sheila murphy and this is mission possible helping change the way you see returning citizens until next time create your battle plan and make your mission possible <laughs>